The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. For the world, or, you know, or some appreciation of the world, the coming out of the Buddhist tradition is, uh, comes from the myth of the Buddha's awakening. And that is, um, after, his, after he was awakened, it said he stayed in his, in his spot of awakening underneath a Bodhi tree for seven days, enjoying the bliss of his freedom. And then he got up and, uh, uh, from his place, and the myth says he took a few steps out away from the tree and then turned around <coughs> and gazed at the tree and then bowed in gratitude to the tree for supporting him, sh- sh- uh, shielding him, shading him, uh, sheltering him uh, during the time in which we sat there f- uh, pursuing his awakening. And this idea of uh, offering gratitude and appreciation to the natural world, um, I think is a beautiful thing to do. And I suspect that uh, if I tell you all, uh, you know, this is a good thing to do, either I'm talking to the converted or you're just irritated by this idea that we should appreciate nature. So I'll try not to do that, do it that way. The, um, but I will offer you another way, and that is that um, when we sit down to meditate, we meet ourselves, we find out what's happening here. The functionings of our mind begin becoming clear. And it's very common people first sit down to meditate. Um, more often than not, they discover their mind is out of control. Or their mind is in control, but they're not. It's just kind of a little bit chaotic, a lot of thinking and, you know. And, um, and then as the mind begins to settle down, you find out there's all kinds of unresolved issues or uh, different ways in which the mind operates, operating systems that are operating around beliefs, desires, aversions, uh, fears, um, concerns that are kind of operating, that are kind of driving the, driving the ship. And we realize we don't have to. And so we begin slowly relaxing and letting go of some of these things which are unnecessary and in particularly, we let go of those things which uh, are unnecessary in the moment that keep us from being at peace, keep us from being at ease, at ease or relaxed or calm. But as we do this, it also begins to remove the veils or the filters over our eyes. And we begin to see more clearly. In the process of meditation, that clarity, we start seeing more deeply, some of the more and more deeper operating systems that we live by. And one of the simple ways of referring to the, uh, the thoughts, the beliefs, the structures of our thinking that operate and get in the way of our well-being are thoughts and beliefs that divide us, that keep us fragmented. Sometimes we're fragmented from ourselves. We have parts of ourselves we don't like, trying to push away, things we feel like we should and shouldn't do. And there's a lot of activity trying to defend ourselves or be apologetic or criticize ourselves, and it's a whole slew of things that keep us divided from ourselves. And as those activities of separation, division, of holding things at a distance, or being critical or angry, begin to quiet down, uh, we start feeling more whole. And feeling more whole is a beautiful thing. And it's a lot of wisdom to treating ourselves as whole 
rather than treating ourselves with a conflict or animosity. And to treat ourselves whole is to treat all of who we are within the, the scope of attention, of awareness. In particular, awareness that is uh, kind, an awareness which is inclusive, an awareness that doesn't divide, doesn't say that's bad, this is right, this is wrong, this is the good part of me, this is the bad part of me. And there's a, some people find it very meaningful to open up and have a certain kind of attention that doesn't uh, condone or approve of everything that we are, but also doesn't um, continue the fragmentation, separation, but begins relaxing the attention and have a holistic presence for who we are, to hold ourselves as whole, to see us as a whole being. And uh, as we do this, deeper and deeper process of, of quieting the mental activities that keep us from being whole, it becomes more and more enjoyable to be whole. And it's quite remarkable then to be able to hold some of the ways that we're maybe a little bit unusual. And most people have a few things which might be slightly, not, not, not most of you of course, but some people, <laughs> you know, they're slightly odd. And, and no longer see those things as problems, but see them as something just, you don't have to, celebrate them either, just kind of seem, this, this is who we are, this is the, the holding the kind of sense of whole, holistic whole. And in that holistic whole, relax, relax more, and, and not feel in conflict in the world. So it's quite meaningful. And, um, and in, from that place, it's possible to become more sensitive in a in variety of heartfelt ways. So one of the things is to have more compassion. Some people find they have greater self-compassion out of that. Some of these uh, oddities might be a little bit painful. And so to be whole is to be able to hold that in our compassion rather than our self-criticism we might there. Um, And also we begin, so it's this capacity for feeling ourselves and having compassion, caring for ourselves, being friendly, uh, having goodwill becomes a stronger and more more strong thing. But that that sense of uh, lowering the forces of separation, the forces of being in conflict with the world, uh, also world works not just within us psychologically, but also works with the world around us. And so it can be with our friends, uh, uh, where I've, you know, one of, one of the beautiful things I've found from being, <coughs> meditating with people, maybe some of you have experienced coming to IMC, I hope so, uh, some of you uh, maybe have been on retreat and experienced it there, and there are other situations in life where this can happen, where um, the usual divisions which we live by, uh, the fears of certain people, the judgments of certain people, um, begin to fall away as well, and we're able to be together just as people. And uh, we stop seeing people as roles, whatever. The, when I lived in Japan, I was told that this operates in the... Japanese baths. They used to have public baths and many people would go to the public baths to bathe. They didn't have showers and stuff in their homes. And so, um, and Japan, Japan is somewhat of a hierarchical, stratified social structure there. And people have to speak differently depending who you're speaking to in the different class structure and all that. But when you go to the uh, baths, everyone's naked together, uh, it's understood that all the social hierarchy and differences falls away and people are just there as people and it's kind of a more egalitarian place. So it's possible to come to meditation and be around people for some while and 
the mind begins to quiet down, quiet down the forces of judgments and criticism and, and, um, and fears of people. And something begins happening where the people around become just people. We're just here together in a simple way. Uh, the same people who you might have seen outside and out in public. And uh, they're the kind of person that, well, you're not so sure about, <laughs> maybe, uh, or something, right? And here, so something begins to settle and let go. And then I would like to say that then we become a little bit more whole because we're more inclusive. We're not creating boundaries and separations. And, um, and you know, it's quite dramatic if you go to a retreat, these, like we have seven-day retreats, and to feel the difference between, the, as a community, uh, the evening we open and how it's like in the afternoon we end seven days later. And uh, in the in sense of being, you know, the separation, the differences we have between us become less and less important. And our sameness becomes quite important or quite meaningful. Partly because to live caught up in the differences between people takes work. It's an activity of the mind. And as we begin quieting down, this sense of becoming more holistic and more inclusive is partly a function of um, the forces of thinking and judgments and all these forces in the mind, activities of the mind, quiet down. And so we find in our community begins to extend out and there's an inclusive, more holistic sense of a community. But it can extend further. And I'll offer you a maybe kind of a, maybe it's a very small, but over-the-top example of myself, of being on retreat. And, um, and during the retreat, I was talking to someone or standing with someone, and the person plucked a leaf off the tree that was next to us. And it was painful for me to see the leaf being torn off. Because it seemed like a violation, like damage to the tree. And uh, if I hadn't been on, ret- on, the re- on a retreat, I don't think I would have been that sensitive. I hope this is not a negative advertisement for retreats. <laughs> but rather, a positive idea, it's, I think it's quite, quite a wonderful thing that someone have that level of sensitivity. Um, and so, so there, there was a sense of inclusiveness, a sense of connectedness to the tree that gave me a different relationship to how to care for it or how to feel for it than you know, if I was busy running around and hardly even noticed the trees because I'm... You know, my, my little drama of my life is what's important. So as the dramas of our life, as the, mech, as the thoughts and activities and busyness of our mind, preoccupations of our mind settle down, um, one way of understanding what happens is we become more whole. And we become more whole in ourselves. Whole meaning we include all of ourselves without being in conflict. We also become more whole as a community. And we become more whole in relationship to the world and the environment. And uh, then the question is, how do we behave differently when we feel the sense of connectedness, a sense of whole, a sense of inclusivity? And I suggest that then we begin appreciating much of our world that we can't appreciate if we're preoccupied. So then the question is, what kind of world do you want to live in? Do you want to live in a world that you... Uh, meet with meet you, you meet it or see it with appreciation, or do you live in a world where you, it's so easy to be dissatisfied with how things are, dissatisfied how much you have? There's so many things to be dissatisfied. There's no shortage of things to be dissatisfied. I'm sure each of you can come up with a long list. We spent all night coming up with a good list of things that are worthwhile to be dissatisfied by. 
and you're justified to be dissatisfied. But you know, what, you know, what a drag. <laughs> you know, to come up with a list. And, uh, but to live in a world where we can appreciate our world, I think is a contribution to the world. There's a lot to appreciate. We can also come up with a big long list of things to appreciate. But it doesn't have to be forced. You know, let, let's appreciate things and squeeze appreciation out of you. If you relax, if you open up, if you develop your mindfulness and see in this more inclusive way, I think the appreciate more, much more appreciation is going to be there. And then how will you respond? So there's a, um, a story which I like to tell, I tell often, because I like it so much, of Gary Snyder in Japan. He was an American poet who was practicing Zen in Japan in the early 1960s. And he um, tells a story of a Zen teacher who gave him particular teaching. And the teaching was, in Zen, there are only two things. There is meditation, and there's sweeping the temple courtyard. And the temple courtyard doesn't stop at the gate of the temple, meaning the whole world's your courtyard. So sweeping is cleaning, right? And, and there's so much sweeping in, court, in monasteries in Japan, it's almost like their religion to sweep. I, I did so much sweeping. Every day you sweep. And, um, and um, so the idea that you're caring for the place that you live in, and so it's natural to care, I don't know how natural it is, but um, I, I think that if you're relaxed and feel you have a little bit of space and feel connected, um, that it's fairly natural to want to clean up the mess in your house. You know, if you leave your dishes piled up high for weeks on end, and you know, at some point you probably start cleaning it up. And so uh, I think just caring for your environment that's local is probably a fairly natural thing to do. And the, the, so one of the, one of the very important, crucial issues for us as a human race is how do we expand that sense that our courtyard doesn't stop, you know, on the door leaving our house? How does it not stop at the edge of our property? How does it not stop edge of our immediate neighborhood? How do we expand out further? And uh, two things I'd like to say. One is that I think that as we develop this greater holistic attitude, feeling, connection to the world, then partly it comes natural, but partly it doesn't, because part of the extended world that we live in, the courtyard, is not within necessarily our, it doesn't come within our sights. We don't necessarily see it. We don't, we, there's a lot, a lot of things that our life touches that involves and supports our life that we don't see it where it comes from and we don't see where it goes when we get rid of it. Out of sight, out of mind. Out of sight, not responsible. Someone else's problem. So it takes some education to appreciate how our courtyard goes beyond um, the world that we can see and that we're involved in. And there's, um, you know, a lot of, lot of, lot of our world that has impact on us, has impact on our neighbors, impact on our extended community, impact on our environment, that we have some responsibility to, some connection to, but we don't really feel that it's inside our courtyard. 
or we don't, we don't have the sense of inclusivity, sense of wholeness, that all this is part of our life as well. So what to do? Do we just meditate more? Or do we educate ourselves about what's going on further afield? For people who meditate, I hope, very much hope, that um, meditation is one of those ways to cultivate this kind of sense of holistic inclusivity that then allows our empathy, our care, to flow kind of naturally from there. Our generosity, our goodwill, our caring can just flow as a natural thing. But uh, kind of, some people like to say it's kind of like uh, your hand, you know, you, you feel connected to your hand and you probably care for your hand. You clean it, you've cut your, you've cut your hand, you put a bandage on it, just kind of things you would do for your hand. But why should your, why should your world stop at your edge of your hand to feel the same connection to, you know, uh, other people, the natural world, is possible. Some people feel that, that the natural world is just an extension of themselves or their, exten- or their extension of the natural world. But why? why? Why be interested in this? And we could certainly give you the moralistic reasons that, uh, you know, that we're in trouble as a planet. As you, you know, there's so much damage happening. And, but a lot of you know that already and it's kind of just kind of I don't know if it would be meaningful for me to say that to you. But what is meaningful, I think, is that um, I think we can take care of the world, take care of our communities, while taking care of ourselves. That is not so separate. These things aren't separate. Just like caring for your own house and keeping it clean is not something, hopefully for most of you, is not a burden. It's something you do kind of naturally. Or caring for your hand is something you just do. Um, uh, As the divisions in our mind as the activities of our mind uh, begin to uh, come into balance. So some of the negative forces in the mind stop operating so strongly. Fear, anger, greed, laziness, uh, discouragement, despair, all these things begin to settle away. They don't get in the way of acting, doesn't get in the way of caring and doing something. And as, as those forces settled, we're better for it. It's nice for us. It's freeing. And at the same time, as those fall, fall away, I think it's more uh, easier to want to care for the world around us as an out- outcome for that. Maybe that's motivating. The fact that uh, caring for yourself and doing this inner purification, this inner work of transformation you don't just do it for yourself, but you make yourself into a vehicle of someone who can operate and care for the world around, around you. Um, we don't do it as an obligation, but we do it as a transformation. We do it as something which is inspiring and beneficial for all concerned, including ourselves. I imagine that most people who come here, most of you are probably already concerned about the environment, already somewhat informed about it. Um, But are you doing as much as you can? Probably not. Do you want to do more? I don't know if you want to do more. But perhaps if you keep developing your practice, you don't have to think about doing more as an obligation or as a should. It'll be just more of a natural thing that comes out of you, more of an easier thing to do 
to want to change what you do. Perhaps it requires, I don't know if it requires, but uh, there's a fair number of people in the kind of communities that are here in the peninsula who could probably live simpler lives, probably live lives where they don't use as much energy or uh, spend a little bit more money to invest into doing clean energy for their homes or for their cars. You know, is that, does that diminish your life? Is that a burden to do that? It could be with the wrong attitude. But what I'm suggesting is that there's a way of kind of this deep spiritual transformation that Buddhism points to that allows us to, to simplify our lives in a way that feels like it enhances us. It doesn't diminish us. And I think that is inspiring. How can we be models of simplifying our lives or living in more environmentally conscious ways in a way that it feels directly, or it is directly a way that we feel enhanced rather than diminished? So I can give you one little example. Um, uh, I live uh, about a mile, mile and a half away from here. And whenever I can, I come down here uh, with either I walk or I bike. Now I'm very aware that that's much better for the world than me driving down here. But I love to walk or to bike down here. Um, even if you told me, you know, it's 50-50 whether it's good for the environment or not, you know, it just doesn't matter if you walk or if you drive. I would still want to walk. I, it's a good exercise. I feel energized by it. I love breathing the air usually. I like the trees that I walk and see so I walk down. I get to think a certain way. I love how I think when I walk, preparing to come down here to teach. And I just feel my life is enhanced by having that time to walk. Not, very, not uncommonly, there are times when I know I can walk or bike down here and I have the thoughts, I have a lot to do. You know, I have a lot to do to go down to IMC and help figure out how to teach people to be calm and relax their lives and be mindful and do things, right? <laughs> so, so I have these thoughts, you know, I, I should drive down and so I get down there and do what I have to do, right? But when I don't, I feel like my life is enhanced by this. So it's a small example of what we can do. You know, so, so the, the issue is not what you can do, but what you can do that comes from a place that's transformed within us and what we can do that feels like it enhances your life rather than diminishes it. Because when people feel that they're going to be diminished their life, then they're not going to do something. I was really struck by a study I read. I don't think I can represent it well. A study I read about. Of It pointed out that they studied the, people, the kind of people who are most likely, it's about five years ago, to recycle take their own initiatives to recycle, live green in a variety of ways. And they found that the people who are most likely to be interested, concerned by this, were people who were well enough off in their lives to be able to fly on vacations to places. Like fly to Hawaii or you know, something. And uh, if you do an energy audit of where you, most of your energy is used, like I did some time ago, 
Uh, we do one airplane trip usually a year to Boston for family gathering to see all the family get together. And um, so we plug that into these energy, energy audit websites. They, they you know, figure out how much energy you use, and including everything else you do. You know, it's very interesting. If you haven't done it, I encourage you to do an energy audit. You can go to lots of websites to do it. I, um, the Nature Conservancy has an energy audit you can do. And, um, and I was somewhat surprised, it was kind of eye-opening to see that half of my annual energy consumption was uh, the, that one plane trip to Boston and back. And that was quite something, right? So if you're cut, turning off the lights in your house, and <laughs> you know, which is a good thing to do, don't stop doing it. Do all kinds, you know, all, you know, things you can do that live more green. And then you fly off, you know, to Bali for your vacation. You know, it's, you know, it's still worthwhile to turn off the lights, but... <laughs> so anyway, the, st- the study found that the people who are, tend to be live most green were the ones who would just kind of go over the top, you know, the energy uses by these flights. So these, these somewhat well enough people, people who are well enough off to fly on vacation, should they be told don't fly? I don't think that's going to work. That's, you know, uh, but what maybe what would work, maybe some people are choosing to this. I know lots of people are choosing to fly less when they realize this. And some people are taking, I know one friend of mine is taking a train whenever he can. It's interesting, if you could do the energy audits and you plug in, like say you fly to the East Coast and you, you see how much energy it is to take a plane and then you do the same thing with a train. It's dramatic the difference, how much less energy on a train. And I, I was surprised by this. If you put in a car, it's less than a train. So driving yourself across, you'd think, I would thought there was a lot more energy, but ca- airplanes use so much that even driving across, your be- in terms of energy and gas and carbon and all that usage, you're much better off driving across country, but then you have to have five days, right? So instead of asking people not to fly, what is possible to do is to mitigate. And this is one of the big movements in the ecology environmental movement, is how do we mitigate, how do we compensate, how do we uh, uh, compensate for some of the ways that we live that cause harm. So one of the ways that some people like to mitigate is to um, uh, make donations for these carbon offsets. So you can you find out how much carbon offsets you need to do to balance your energy use, and then you make a donation to some people who are reforesting parts of the world. The Nature Conservancy had this a few years ago where they were reforesting uh, parts of Mississippi. They had a whole natural area, preserve, some place they land, and they did um, uh, enough uh, reforestation there that they closed that project down, and now I think they're reforesting some place in Central America. Um, trees make a big difference for you know getting this carb- carbon out of the atmosphere and trying to somehow mitigate that some of the damage we d- we're doing. So plucking the leaf off a tree. Maybe that's over the top to feel that pain, though I don't think so. But it doesn't. You don't have to look around very far to see things that do hurt more dramatically. One of the things that I saw that made a big impact on me was a documentary with jo- jo- Joanna Macy, where she went up to the Alberta tar fields in Alberta, Canada, 
you know, which is where these big tar fields where they're getting oil now for the, 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 these pipelines that there's all this pressure to uh, put into across the United States. And uh, she's in this little plane and she's flying over the tar fields talking about what's going on down there below. And you can see these tar fields below. It's like completely denuded, clear-cut, denuded, uh, destroyed, churned up ground, all black, that goes on for miles and miles and miles. You can watch us flying over it and flying over it and flying over it. It's just amazing, the size of it. And then they said something that I couldn't believe. I had to go and do some research. I had to go. They said that um, the size of these churned up tar fields is the size of England. How could that be? It couldn't be. I thought they must have been a mistake. So then I went and kind of looked into it, and, and in fact, England is about 50 million square miles in size. And the Alberta star, uh, uh, tar fields are about 50 million square feet in size. You can stick kind of England inside of these big tar fields. You know, I think England's a big place. You want to do that to England? What about all those people there? So that's like a big leaf to pull off a tree to see that. And, um, and then to have, we have our practice. Come back to our practice and so we don't despair. To feel the despair, to feel the grief, to feel the concern that we have. But to the, to the degree to which that separates us, that ends up feeling conflict. That has a chance to soften, to fall away. Not so that we forget about the tar fields, but so that uh, we don't see it through the eyes of our despair, but see it through the eyes of our compassion and care. And then perhaps we do something. And what do we do? We can't, we can't be involved in all the good causes in the world. So I find it that when I encounter suffering in the world that motivates me, that touches me, I can't go take care of everything, meet everything by any means. But uh, there's this wonderful alchemy of allowing it to touch me and be motivated and then using that motivation to say, I'm going to try to uh, uh, do what I can do better. So it might not touch the people who are concerned or that part of the world that I'm concerned with, but I'm going to try to do what I can do better. And so it's something that makes sense for in my life, given the circumstances of my life and also given the circumstances of the kind of uh, capacities that I have. I'll do this. So some particular thing. And uh, so the suggestion is everyone has something they can do. Uh, whether it's, you know, I mean, I don't want to say whether, but uh, everyone has gifts. Everyone has something, some place that makes sense for who they are. And rather than feeling responsible for the tar fields, to feel responsible, to take that energy and be, you know, let's do something here. Maybe I can drive less. One of the great things that um, some of these like UPS discovered some years ago, was that um, if they planned their routes so they take more right turns in their cars rather than left turns with their trucks, they use less gas. And they have a big fleet. So you have all these UPS trucks that are going around clockwise around the world. <laughs> and uh, so that's nice. It's a small little thing. Do you guys, do you go clockwise around your, you know, probably never thought about it. And you have to do your, your various shopping trips and plan. Okay, but you go clockwise. You tend to not use more. You tend because it's easier to make those right turns. You don't have to wait and to make a left turn. And uh, so maybe you can do that. Maybe it's that simple. 
or you can write a letter, or you can vote for someone. Um, there was a. Do you, do you know that the biggest sit the the city in the United States that has the the largest how do I say um, the city with the largest population that has a Green Party mayor? You know where that city is? Anybody know? Portland? Nope. Sacramento? Nope. Closer than that. It's closer than Sacramento. It's like in your neighborhood. You don't know this, huh? So this is good to educate yourself, right? Is um, uh, the mayor of Richmond. And you know what else is in Richmond? Chevron oil refineries. So maybe there's a reason why there's a green mayor there. <laughs> She's been there since 2006, so they've been quite a long time. Do you know how many people were hospitalized last year? Did you know there was a fire at the refineries last year in Richmond? <coughs> Anybody know how many people were, were hospitalized? Went to the hospital after that fire last August? 220. What? 250. Any other guesses? What? 10,000. Other guesses? 15,000. There were 15,000 people who went to the hospital a year ago in Richmond. But most of you didn't know that, right? These are, these are your neighbors. So when we don't know things, it doesn't motivate us. When we don't know things, we can't include it in our holistic hearts. How much do you want to hold in your hearts? My hope is you'll hold it all. Um, I hope we can hold the whole, whole world in our hearts. Wouldn't that be great? And I'm confident that your heart's big enough to hold it. And it's worthwhile cultivating and developing a heart that can hold it all. And we live, we'll live in a better world. I was very, very uh, kind of moved when I heard a, a talk on climate change from a climate change expert in the spring. And he said, uh, climate change, a global warming, uh, is going to be an issue we're, we're going to be facing for the rest of our lives. It's not like, not like we're go, you know, we'll take care of it to, to this year and it's going to go away. You know? this is gonna, it's going to be here for the rest. This is something we have to cope with, deal with, respond to, try to... That's quite a thing, quite a statement, I thought. This is here for us. And um, so how do we have a heart that can hold all that? And then I'll tell you something which will either despair you, amuse you, or enlighten you. If I can say it right. Kind of from the Buddhist point of view, We're never going to make paradise. We're never going to make this into a perfect place. There's always has been, always will be lots of problems for, for us in this world. And so we try to do the best to improve, to make the situation better. We don't ignore it. Maybe we're passionate about trying to make it a better place. But we keep our hearts relaxed and open and okay, in a certain kind of way, not okay, it's the wrong word, but 
we keep our hearts open and relaxed with whatever way it continues to develop. An open and relaxed heart in the midst of whatever direction it goes is probably a heart that can be more responsible in a good way. So I hope that one of the, one of the things I really hope about this practice that we offer at IMC and Buddhism and all that is a practice that can help us deal with our own hearts so that the forces of division in our hearts and separation fall away and we can have these parts that can hold the whole world within it. That's my hope. So then the last thing I'll do, before we go, is, um, so when we started thinking about having this Earth Care Week and just, this is the first year that it's happening, this Buddhist community has invented Earth Care Week to celebrate as Buddhists. And uh, Buddhist groups all over, and teachers all over the world actually have now taken it on. And the idea was to, to um, make this an annual event. And this year there was so little lead time that everyone's kind of like, what do we do? You know, <laughs> we have to plan or do something. So hopefully next year we can plan ahead and do something that's more interesting than just me giving a talk. And, um, and, um, but we did, in thinking about what we could do, it seemed the right thing to do was to um, not take any of the regular donations, dana, that we have out there for the teachers or for IMC, but let those donations be used for something that would mitigate um, uh, the energy use, the whatever damage that we, we are, we're responsible for, for our community. And so in looking around and see, trying to see what could we do that would be useful and meaningful, we came up with the idea that uh, we would like, to, we, we, we had this idea already, is to have a solar water heater at our new retreat center. In terms of our ongoing, the air conditioner just came on, it's like talking, <laughs> talking about this. <laughs> the, um, uh, you know, the, uh, the turns, this building doesn't actually use that much energy. And so putting solar, uh, uh, you know, voltaic uh, panels on our roof, you know, that probably would, doesn't make a lot of sense. But the place in, you know, in our community that has, makes the biggest difference in our energy use is uh, having the solar water heater at our retreat center. We use a lot of hot water down there. And, uh, and during the cooler parts of the month of the year, we use um, hot water uh, to, ra- to heat the building, it's radiators. So we would like to uh, install a solar water heater down there. And for those of you who uh, like to mitigate, you know, mm-hmm. all the you know, ways in which you use gasoline and diesel and jet fuel and all those wonderful things that you do, um, that's one way you could do it, is you can help us uh, uh, buy this for our community that we have. Anyway, so the idea down there is, as you'll see by the door, there's a sign on the dana box that all the dana, um, this whole week that I've I've been teaching here, goes for that purpose. So some of you might be inspired, and if you're not inspired, at least you should know that's happening, so you don't think you're donating to me, Um, or whatever. So um, thank you for listening. I hope this was an okay talk. I didn't know how to give this kind of talk, you know, because I thought I was talking to the converted and I didn't want to preach about how important this is, but 
I hope it was respectful of you. Thank you.